Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. privilege and a joy to be here this morning and opening God's word. Um, If you would, would you please pray with me real quick? Father God, we come before you now in the name of your son, our great and glorious King Jesus. And Father, we ask that as we open your word and ask for you to speak to us, that you would incline our hearts to you, Lord. That you would open our eyes, that we would see your wonder and glory. That collectively as a church, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would satisfy us with your love, that you would lead us into all truth. I pray now, Lord, that the words out of my mouth would be pleasing unto you. That which is true and of you, God, will be planted deep in our hearts in a transformative way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. If you would, please take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to be specifically this morning looking at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And as was said earlier, today we're going to be looking at the central theme of worship. And the scriptures are very clear. You and I are called to worship God. Psalm 29, verse 2 tells us, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord... In the splendor of his holiness. But church, it's not enough that you and I know that we're supposed to worship God. Because we need to actually take a step back and ask ourselves, what does that actually mean to worship him? Does it mean that we simply show up to church on a Sunday morning? Is it putting on our favorite Christian music and singing our hearts out in the car? Or is worship about how we feel emotionally? Sometimes we do that. We ask, how is worship today? We're really asking, how did it make you feel? Or is worship about our preferences, our likes, and our dislikes? Or is, church, uh, is worship about appealing to the non-believer? See, the answer to the question, what does it mean to worship God is of the utmost importance. Because you're either going to worship God rightly, or you're going to live in idolatry. There is no third way. And so what I want to submit to you, church, this morning, is that worship isn't about us at all. But it's completely about God. Therefore, since worship is God-centered... Each and every one of us needs to be God-focused. So the big idea for this morning's passage is that true worship is having everything that we think, say, do, and desire directed at the fear and love of God expressed in obedience. Let me repeat that. True worship is having everything we think, say, do, and desire Directed at the fear and love of God expressed in obedience. 
Now, as I said, we're going to be in Deuteronomy. And by quick recap, it's written by Moses. It's his final words to Israel because he will die and not enter the promised land. And thus far through Deuteronomy, he's been reminding the people of their ongoing disobedience to God. And now he's pleading with them as a father to his children to turn from their disobedient ways and to be faithful in their worship to God as they enter this new and promised land. And I can imagine if I'm the Israelites and I've been hearing Moses recount failure after failure, sin after sin, disobedient act after disobedient act, I have to be asking myself, so what are we supposed to do? And Moses answers that question in these these two verses by giving five commands. And they fall under three headings. The first heading is that true worship fears God. Look at verse 12 with me. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The first thing we see there is to fear the Lord your God. And so again, we have to take a step back and ask the question, who is this God that we are supposed to fear? See, if we get the question of God wrong, we get the fear of God wrong. Some people would think that God is this heavenly genie in the sky who's there to give you your best life now and grant every wish. Many in the culture would say that God is the tyrant who's there ready to punish you when you get wrong, kind of like Zeus throwing lightning bolts of judgment. Perhaps even more common is God, the celestial therapist, who's there to listen to all your problems make you feel better. Some people would accuse God of being vain and egotistical because he expects everybody to worship him because he's so needy. Or one that I find common in churches across the country. The God who just can't live without you because you complete him. The list can go on and on, but none of those are who God is. That's not God. Perhaps one of the most beautiful and powerful pictures of God comes from Exodus 34. Verses 6 and 7. It's when Moses was up on that mountain and it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, God is the majestic one that all creation will bow down before. Trees will worship God. Fish that are in the oceans that we've never seen will worship God. And every person ever created will fall down before him in worship. Some as children And others is not. This is the God who is worthy of all of our worship. This is the God that Moses knew. This is the God that Moses is calling Israel to fear. This is the God he's calling us to fear. And the question is there, is this the God that you and I know? Now, fear of God, how do we define that? 
Here's the definition I'll be working with this morning. The fear of God is a profound respect and understanding for all that God is and is capable of. And therefore results in submitting to his rule and reign. A profound respect for and understanding for all that God is and all that God is capable of. And therefore we submit to his rule and reign. See, the fear of God is a beautiful thing. The scriptures tell us that the fear of God is how we get true wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. The fear of God brings blessings. Psalm 128 verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The fear of God keeps us from evil. Proverbs 16.6 And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. See, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Proverbs 14.27 The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And one more verse that surprised me, because I never had thought about this until God revealed it in his word. The fear of God is the church's treasure. Isaiah 33, verse 6. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And so worship must begin with the fear of God. It is the doorway, the entryway into worship. See, the fear of God will also keep us from the fear of man. Now, I'm not referring by fear of man simply to what somebody can do to us, such as death or imprisonment. That's, that can happen. We've seen imprisonment happening recently in Canada to pastors. But it's also what people think of us. That's where fear of man seems to creep in so prevalently. We fear losing certain friendships. We fear losing certain power or prestige in the community. We fear losing approval of our peers. In short, fear of man is a fear that we will not be accepted by the world. And what happens when we fear man? We trip, we stumble into the pit of idolatry. The Puritan William Gurnall said this, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. End quote. But church, when you and I fear God, when we truly fear God for who he is, we don't have to be scared of anyone. God tells us in Psalm 118 verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. And so he tells us here in verse 12, fear the Lord your God. And then he says to walk in all his ways, which is another way of saying to live a godly life. Fear of God shows itself in godly living. The reason so many of our churches are not worshiping God rightly across the country, across the globe, 
is because they look like the world, they smell like the world, they speak like the world, they live like the world. There is no fear of God among so many churches. Churches have become circuses rather than sanctuaries. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans 3:10 through 18. He lists all these sinful actions, and then he wraps it up by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. True fear of God will always lead to a life of submission to God and conformity to his will. That's actually one of the chief ways we can ask ourselves, are we fearing God? Is our, is our life in submission and conformity to him? And the reason that's the case is because what we believe, how we live flows from what we believe. Or another way to say it, belief shapes behavior. When you and I rightly see God for who he is, we know that there is absolutely no option but to walk in all his ways. God must govern everything we think, say, do, and desire. He is worthy of all of our worship. And the beginning of that worship begins with a proper fear of him. Some people make the accusation that perfect love casts out fear, so there should be no fear in the Christian life. But Jesus doesn't seem to think that. Jesus actually says, but I warn you who you should fear. Fear him who has... But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. The early church in Acts says, And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There's no contradiction here. We are called to fear God. But we do so recognizing that the fear of God is actually God's grace being given to us. And we also know that fearing God doesn't mean that we're walking around, wringing our hands, knees knocking, because we think if, we're, if we just mess up, he's going to get us. No. That proper fear of God recognizes that prior to placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that God is and all that God is capable was against us, but in Christ is now for us. If you've ever seen or read the books, The Chronicles of Narnia, it's recognizing that Aslan is the king, the great lion. That he's not safe, but that he's good. And so our fear of God should always be increasing. But our fear of God is only going to be increasing to the degree that we are increasing in our knowledge of who God is. And so therefore, I encourage you, church, to spend your entire life studying the character and attributes of God. The more you know who he is, the greater your fear of him will be. And the greater that your fear of him will be, the more joy and delight you will experience in this life. The fear of God is an interesting thing because typically when you fear something, you're fleeing from it. And so you think the fear of God would result in pulling away from him, but it's the complete opposite. The more you fear God, the more you're drawn to him. And how is that possible? It's because the fear of God is mixed with love for God. And that brings us to our second point. True worship loves God. We see here, 
to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why you love God? I think it's a harder question. I can, people can give reasons why they fear him, but why do you love God? A very common answer is, well, I love God because he loves me and he saved me. That's a good reason. That's true. But it can't be the primary reason you love God. If the primary reason you love God is because what he has done for you rather than simply for who he is, you're loving God because he makes, he makes much of you. Think about it. If your love for God is only connected to because how much he loves you, are you loving him at all for who he is apart from you? See, we need to love God foundationally for who he is. True worship loves God for who he is. You know, in Deuteronomy, Moses has reminded Israel of everything God has done for them. But he's reminded them of everything he's done for them, not so they would be like, wow, he loves me, but to say, this is who our God is. This is the God who makes manna fall from the sky. This is the God who brings water from a rock. This is the God who destroyed the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea. This is the God who makes the mountains shake and lightning and thunder engulf. Moses is telling them, love God because you've seen who he is. And it's the same for us. Everything, starting from our salvation to the day-to-day blessings of just drawing breath, God is doing it so that we can have a greater understanding of who he is. God has saved you, sustains you, sanctifies you, satisfies you, and supplies all of your needs so that you will worship him for who he is. He gives good gifts, but let's not worship the gift over the gift giver. Now, as we talk about love, our culture has reduced love to some emotional feeling that can be fleeting. I mean, think about it. We say we fall in and out of love. Biblically, God doesn't talk about love that way. Love is never simply a feeling according to God's word. Love isn't something that we fall into and fall out of. It never says that God just fell in love with Israel. He fell into love with Israel. No, love was a conscious choice that God made. Love is first and foremost an act of the will seeking the well-being of another. I say that because that's what scripture shows us in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you pick up on the sacrificial aspect of love there? God the Father sends God the Son to take upon flesh, live a perfect life, die for us, bear the full wrath of God the Father. So that our sins could be atoned for and that those who trust in him could be in fellowship with him. Love is completely an active choice that God made with sacrifice for us. And so in doing so, Jesus actually leaves an example of how love should compel us to act in service to others. 
He's given us an example to imitate. But first and foremost, when we love God, we recognize love is something displayed in service to God. It's not about us. It's not, we don't serve God simply because you feel like, man, I really feel like I love God today. Therefore, I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to lose my temper. No. You love God. You make the conscious choice, despite what you're feeling, to walk in love and service to God for who he is. Despite your feelings at times. This, he goes on to say here that it's a, a service to God. To serve with all that you are. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 12.1. He tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which is, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What's he say? Which is your spiritual act of worship. Serving God out of love for God is how we worship God. There was a Lutheran, a Lutheran church leader in the 17th century named Johann Gerhard. And he captured this dynamic between love and fear, I think, beautifully. He says, love without fear relaxes. Fear without love enslaves and leads to despair. End quote. You see, it's not either or, it's both and. Fear, and, fear of God and love of God are two sides of the same coin. And so before we go on to our final point here, I really pray that you take some time this week and just get away from everyone, get away from distractions, get alone with God. Go to prayer and ask God to increase your fear and love of him for who he is. Ask him to open your eyes when you're in the word so that you would more clearly see his character. And then just worship him right there. Worship him. This brings us to our final point. True worship is governed by God's word. Look at verse 13 with me. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now earlier we talked about fearing God shows itself in godly living. But Moses is making another distinction here. When he says walk in all his ways, that's not the same thing he means here by keeping all his statutes. He's implying something different. Verse 12, he was talking about godly living. Here he's talking about being governed. You see, the word of God can never be separated from the worship of God. Because it is in and through the word of God that we know his will and can worship him rightly. So there's this thing called the regulative principle of worship. And what that principle states is that all of corporate worship should be governed by the specific directions that are within Scripture. There's this, thing, there's this old document called the 1689 Baptist Confession. And it defines this principle this way. The acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him and is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, God may not be worshipped according to human imagination 
or the inventions or suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that's not prescribed in Holy Scripture, unquote. See, that principle is a good one. It's great for the church's worship to be governed by God's word. However, that principle applies for our individual personal worship because all of life is to be regulated by Scripture. Your entire life should be under the governance of God's word. So we have to ask ourselves, is it? You know, Corporate worship is simply the overflow of inward personal worship. What we do here together should be a picture of what we're doing individually before God. You and I do not have the freedom to decide how we want to worship God. We're supposed to submit to how God commands us to worship him. And so it's governed by God's word and it shows itself in obedience. We see there in verse 13. Unfortunately, it's become far too common today that when people are held accountable to God's word, they quickly shout legalism, legalism. You're being a legalist. Church, obedience to God's word is not legalism. When when I tell my daughter, hey, go pick up your room, she doesn't say, Dad, you're being a legalist now, stop. No. No. Obedience to God's word is the evidence that you fear and love him rightly. That's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if we say obedience is legalism, we're saying Jesus got it wrong. And so we love him, and we see here it says, requires. This is what God requires of us. Obedience is not optional. It's not, he doesn't suggest obedience. He commands it. He is the king and we are his servants. At home, we have a simple definition for obedience. Do what you're told, do it quickly, and do it with the right attitude. There should be no difference for us before God. There's so much more that can be said. Time is, is quickly going here. So let me just end by saying this. We've seen that true worship is having everything we think, say, do, and desire directed at the fear and love of God expressed in obedience. But we can never forget that the reason any of us want to worship God is because he saved us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God saved you by his grace and for his glory through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he gave you a new heart, and that new heart is wired to find its greatest joy and deepest desire in the worship of God. And so that new identity you have in Christ, part of that new identity is a worshiper. And so I commend you, church, today to go forward and worship God in the power of the gospel, knowing that when you do so, God will strengthen, sustain, and satisfy you. As your life is an extent, as your life is an act of worship. So with that, church, let's pray, um, and we'll close out. Father God, we come before you now, thankful that you have given us a new life in Christ, and that new life has enabled us to worship you. We recognize God that so often we are just like Israel. 
disobedient and stiff-necked. Seeking to exercise our own will and our own desires, Lord. But our life is to worship you according to your word. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go forward today, that you would increase our fear and love of you and that we would express that in obedience to your word. Father, may our life be an act of worship that is pleasing in your sight. May we not offer strange fire like Nadab and Abihu, but may we worship you, Lord, rightly and fully. And in doing so, we know, Lord, our joy will be increased. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.